it's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Jens Nordvig is founder and CEO of Exante Data and Market Reader. An alumnus of Goldman Sachs, Bridgewater Associates, and Nomura, we dig into Jens's career to understand the world-renowned culture at Ray Dalio's Bridgewater and how those experiences have informed his unique investment approach. Today's focus is Japan. As the country's finance minister warns their finances have become increasingly precarious to an almost unprecedented degree, we first look back to understand how the world's third largest economy has amassed the heaviest debt burden in the industrialized world. Next, Jens covers Japan's monetary policy, commenting on a historic move last December and the BOJ's decision to maintain the policy balance rate last week. Our focus on Japan ends with an explanation of the ripple effect this situation is having on equity and currency markets around the world. We finish with Jens's next big idea, an underreported economic trend he reckons listeners should keep a close eye on in 2023. And remember, for a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. Welcome, Jens. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things? Good, very good. It's been a busy start to the year, so uh, <laughs> lots of stuff to talk about for sure. Yeah, great. All right, well, let's get straight into it. Uh, I'll start with an intro question. This will alert listeners to a central topic covered later in the episode, uh, and that's Japan. So Japan's the third largest economy in the world, and yet real wages haven't grown there in 30 years, I read before the call. And while incomes in South Korea and Taiwan, for example, have caught up and even overtaken Japan, Japan's still floundering a little bit. And with a lot of people, I think, unfamiliar with Japan's financial plight, uh, I thought you could start by briefly catching them up. You know, what's going on in Japan? What's the financial economic situation in Japan? Because we're going to get into their monetary policy later on. Yeah. Well, we have inflation in the world now, but uh, Japan is at the opposite for, for many decades, right? So they had a huge bubble that kind of exploded in the 90s. And since the 90s, they've been struggling with an economy that just couldn't, couldn't really generate strong growth, couldn't really generate enough demand to get the inflation to a reasonable level. So we've had deflation and, or at least below target inflation for essentially 30 years. And um, I work for a Japanese bank from 2009 2015, right? We spent a lot of time in, in Tokyo and other parts of Japan. And um, really, that whole period was about, okay, what can the Japanese government, led by Abe at the time, do to, to escape this? And this is, this is still essentially the, the situation we have now, right? We have a central bank that, as opposed to everything else that's going on in the world with central banks tightening monetary policy in some places and raising interest rates very significantly, they still have negative interest rates in the front end of the curve and bond yields that they are trying to control, although there's been some tweaks that created a massive volatility in the market, right? But it's, 
big picture, they are still in an extremely easy monetary policy regime because they're fighting these deflationary forces that have been there for a multi-decade period. Yeah, fantastic. All right, that's a great job of setting the scene. And we're going to get back to a lot of those key issues. But before we do that, circle back, cover some of your career history today, just to set the interview in context and introduce you to our listeners. I'm keen to understand your context and how your earlier career might have informed how you think about markets. Um, So let's start with Goldman Sachs. You were there for eight years, I believe. And most recently, during that time, you were co-head of global currency strategy there. So what did that involve? Well, so I started out in a, in a role in London where I covered Eastern Europe, and I did everything for Eastern Europe from, from economics to, to strategy. And then at some point in the middle of my tenure at Goldman, I moved to uh, New York to, to sit on the trading desk there, and that was sort of the global currency uh, strategy role. And um, yeah, so that uh, was a sort of shift in my career from sort of more long-term economics to more, okay, let's... Uh, uh, see if we can come up with, with trading ideas that can make people money. Goldman has a, a track record of, of, uh, of prop trading. That was before uh, there were some changes in the regulatory environment as to uh, how that was seen by regulatory authorities. But certainly in terms of my career, I turned from a sort of more being an economist to being a strategist with, with the goal of, of finding profit opportunities for internal clients, external clients of Goldman. Yeah, got it. Okay, well, after that, you joined Bridgewater Associates as senior currency strategist. And uh, having spoken to other Bridgewater alumni on this podcast, they've talked about a very particular culture, one that potentially emanated from Dalio and emanated from the top down. Talk to us about your experience of that Bridgewater culture. Well, so it's no, it's no secret that they have a very unique uh, culture. They are very open about that. Ray Dalio has written books about that, right? So um, I think there's many aspects of it, but uh, one of the aspects is this thing that he calls radical transparency, right? So if you have a discussion about something, you should not be holding back, right? So you have some, mm-hmm. uh, let's just call it very lively way <laughs> of discussing things uh, <laughs> in, in ways that would not be permitted in other organizations. Uh, it is encouraged to to give uh, feedbacks uh, to, to people in, in, all the time in ways that people are not used to from most other organizations and, and uh, in many cultures would be deemed uh, inappropriate, offensive, right? So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a, a very different way of, of working. So it's a little bit like you kind of assume perhaps a slightly different identity when you are in the, in the office as opposed to what you are outside. And uh, I think there are big cultural elements to that, but whether that fits with you, whether it's something you can match with your personality uh, it's certainly not for everybody, but that uh, is something you can read about in Ray Dalio's book. You can go into detail with, <laughs> with uh, exactly <laughs> what that culture entails, uh, but it's, uh, it's yeah. certainly unusual and it's something they are deliberately doing in a way that's totally different from what other organizations are doing. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating insight. Um, well, I believe you spent 10 months or so there and uh, you move on to that Japanese bank that you referenced earlier, Nomura. I believe you moved there in October 2009. Talk to us about what influenced that move to Nomura. Yes, yeah, so Nomura so was very interesting at the time. There were a lot of uh, banks that were rebuilding after the global financial crisis. And uh, Nomura had essentially bought half of Lehman Brothers. They bought Lehman Brothers, what was left of it in Europe and in Asia. So they had uh, an investment bank, a global investment bank that was very asymmetric. It was sort of totally tilted towards Europe and, and Asia. 
And then I was hired with a number of other uh, senior hires to sort of essentially build uh, the U.S. investment bank from scratch, right? So I was a specialist in currency research at the time, although my my research uh, management role did more evolved into something broader than currencies. But uh, there was not much currency research when I joined, right? And we had a team that, yeah, we uh, we had the t- the institutional investor top ranking for a number of years after that. So we got from from nothing to to something uh, pretty powerful in, in a short period of time. So it was a fun place to essentially be able to be entrepreneurial within a big organization. Typically, if you join a very big bank, there's some set structures, but Nomura was a thing that was moving fast and evolving quickly and allowed different people to, to be entrepreneurs within the bank. So that was, that was what was attractive for me at the time. Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's dig into that then. I think into, until 2016, you were the global head of FX strategy and head of fixed income research, Americas at Nomura. I read you were responsible for developing the company's research franchise. Uh, you've alluded to it there. But what do you think specifically differentiated Nomura's research and analysis from other investment banks at that time? So I've always had a very data-driven approach to research. And uh, I think when, when I joined Nomura and, and built those research groups out, the focus very much to have a, a sort of hardcore data-driven approach and dig very deep into, into key themes. Uh, at the time, the, the Euro crisis was uh, unfolding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a, an area where we, we did... Uh, a lot of research on the different no backstop facilities that the ECB came up with. Uh, going into detail with those was uh, uh, was very important. There was uh, there was even this uh, debate that was raging about: okay, is the eurozone going to break into pieces? Is, is Greece going to fall off, and so forth? And I actually ended up writing a book that uh, is called "The Fall of the Euro," that mm-hmm. uh, essentially summarized a lot of the work that I, I did, partly in a, in a more setting. So. It was, it was a very interesting time, and um, it was a very nice uh, situation from a strategy perspective where you really needed to mix disciplines, right? Mm. Political analysis, uh, understanding how markets work, and financial plumbing. It was the whole spectrum there. So very, very interesting analytical challenge. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think the part of why we were successful at the Nomura with doing that research was that we just – sort of took a fresh approach to it. We didn't have any legacy <laughs> frameworks that we needed to adhere to. So we just started from scratch. And, uh, and yeah, we had, we had incredible client interest in the work we did on the Euro crisis and also on the economics theme that we discussed a little bit earlier, clearly as a Japanese mm. institution, uh, that was something that clients always came to ask about. Yeah, of course. Well, that approach contributed to that five-year run as institutional investors' number one ranked FX strategist from 2011 to 2015. And so while we've discussed your general approach to research analysis, and we'll dig into some of that later on, but this five-year run speaks to an incredible consistency of results, it would seem. And amidst all of markets, nuances and volatility, how, how did you look to ensure that level of consistency? I, th- I think it has a lot to do with being pragmatic. Like, if you are just going to do, you know, a 20-year view on the U.S. economy or the Chinese economy or something like that, you can stick to the same view, right? But if you have a role Mm -hmm. where the goal is to help clients navigate risks, make money, right, you need to be pragmatic and you need to be um, 
honest about, okay, there's something new that I haven't embedded in my framework that needs to get embedded and you can change your view. Uh, so, um, uh, I certainly don't uh, get everything right, uh, but I think I do have a reputation of being very objective about uh, assessing up uh, new information and and not being, you know, dogmatic about certain views. Like, so I, I flipped my view. Last year is another example, right? So I was very bullish the dollar in the first half and I've been bearish the dollar in, in, in recent months, right? So I'm willing to change my view. And uh, I think uh, if you want to have consistent performance and get respect of, of people who, who take significant risk in the market, that pragmatism is, is a very important piece. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, we've gone through your career history today, so we might as well take it up to present day. Let's talk about Exante Data. Uh, in 2016, I believe you decide to found the company. Uh, first, tell us why and was there a eureka moment perhaps? So when you when you work in a big organization, there's always sort of a, a hierarchy, bureaucracy, constraints on what you do. So uh, I thought it'd be fun to break free of any type of constraints and just have total intellectual freedom to focus on uh, whatever I I wanted really. And uh, I'm a bit of a macro markets nerd. I've always been interested in markets. I, I knew I was going to study economics in university uh, in like fourth grade. So, <laughs> so uh, this in a way, this was just taking the final step, right? I've been through the education at, at Goldman and, and Bridgewater and Amora and uh, then just uh, setting up my own framework where I could focus on whatever I thought was the most interesting, uh, most relevant. And um, then also have the freedom to, to hire the people and set up the, the whole infrastructure in a way I thought was optimal rather than having to ask people for permission. Yeah, I think the intellectual freedom is very important to me. I can shift my focus around as I see fit. And um, that, that's something that uh, is also allowing us to, to sort of focus on the aspect of the analysis that might be too small. For if you're the head of research at a, at a big plank, there's only really so many topics, maybe this many that you, are relevant for like all the clients, right? But sometimes there's actually a market-making opportunity that is outside top five. That is a really good market-making opportunity. And if you're the head of research at a big bank, that's not really your job to do that uh, thing if it's appeared to be a bit niche right? But if at Accenture we decide that there's a massive opportunity in, in Mexico. That can be our focus for a while and just make sure that the clients we have uh, that are allowed to trade Mexico or are capable of doing that, they, they really get aggressive. So that's a little bit different in terms of like how you decide the topics that you focus on. Yeah, got it. Okay, well, Exante Data, I mean, let's, let's dig into the name. Why that name and does it reveal anything about your, your overall approach? <laughs> well, so... Um, Everybody knows what ex post mm-hmm. mean, right? That means yep. after the fact, and ex ante is the opposite of ex post. That means before the fact, right? So if we're going to make going to make some money in the market, it has to be that uh, we have some idea before the market moves. So it just comes from that. And uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of people who are able to explain very well what is happening in the market after it's happened. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit harder to do it before it's happening, right? So. In terms of how we uh, analyze markets at Exante, we we're very we try to be very disciplined with how we use our time, right? So lots of people analyze 
the payrolls release, right? The payrolls release comes out every month. It's the most analyzed data point in the world. Mm -hmm. It's overanalyzed. It's very hard to add any insights around payrolls that um, is not already out there. So payrolls is not a big focus of Accenture data. Like we might have, you know, alternative data and uh, leading indicators of the payrolls release that we focus on before it's coming out, Accenture. And uh, then our job is kind of done. Like what, when the number comes out, like our clients will know how to risk manage and so forth. It's a release that the computers know how to analyze very well. High frequency trading happens immediately after, right? So we have to pick our spots. Okay, where can we actually add some value? And we have to pick the spots where we don't think we can add any value. And we're going to spend as little time as possible in those spots. Yeah, okay. Well, this continuous conversation about your sort of research philosophy then. I read on your website, uh, I think you reference a, a combination of in-depth data analysis and human conceptual thinking. It was the latter half of that equation that interested me most. How does that contribute to your process? I think it's very important, right? Because uh, there's going to be situations where there's something going on in the market where you can say, oh, it would be nice if I can like, you know, statistically backtest this. But what do you do if it's never happened before? Mm-hmm. So in, uh, in January 2020, we started to notice that there was something going on in the Chinese equity market that smelled very fishy. Mm-hmm. And when we were digging into that, it was clearly because there was a COVID outbreak going on in certain parts of China, right? It was not in the news at all. Mm. And then we decided this can be very big. And we allocated essentially half of all the entire research team at Exante did only COVID research mm. from then on and many months after, right? So that was a human decision that this is something that we think can be very big and move markets. It's not something we had a model that told us that we had to focus on COVID, right? So the conceptual mm. thinking really in, informs where we uh, put the focus. And uh, I guess another example would be last year, right? Last year, uh, we had a long period where the, the, the market was very reluctant to price the ECB actually delivering tightening. Mm-hmm. And our approach was not really a data approach there. Our approach was to say, we think in this situation, the ECB is going to operate like the Bundesbank operated in the 70s and 80s when they had an energy crisis in Germany. That was our human conceptual thinking, also based on the sort of power playing within the governing council. Again, this was not a statistical analysis. This was our human conceptual thinking. So we do both. Like at the moment, we do a crazy amount of number crunching in terms of alternative data for China, right? Because we want to know exactly how the Chinese economy is, is uh, recovering from the, the zero COVID policy. Mm. So that's a very data intensive exercise. But in order to really squeeze value out of data, it has to be combined with human conceptual thinking. That's our philosophy. Yeah, great. Well, I watched a video on your website where you actually suggested that in regards to data, China presents a huge opportunity. Why is that exactly? It's because the official data in China is total garbage. So um, I don't pay any attention at all to China's GDP figures. Mm -hmm. For me, that's just a total distraction, right? So our approach to China is uh, driven almost exclusively by alternative data. And there's a lot of alternative data available for. for China, and we also have methods to create our own data in some uh, instances even. So we get a a nice mosaic from all the alternative data in China, and uh, 
yeah, number one, we believe it's much more accurate than the official data. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it's, it's much more timely. And number three, we like to look at stuff that other people are not looking at. Mm. So uh, from, from that perspective, uh, we think there's a lot of room to add value around China. And uh, obviously, especially in the last couple of months, uh, where there's been a huge shift in policy, it's been uh, a key driver of many, many different things, right, from commodity markets to global equity markets. So it's not just important for trading China, it's really important for trading everything, even the turn in the dollar. Mm. Uh, the, the broad dollar turn that, that happened in, in early November, right, was very closely linked to better news out of China, right? So there's lots of things you cannot really trade well unless you understand China well. Yeah, got it. Okay, well, now we've got a better understanding of your approach then. I'm keen to understand who uses your services and perhaps if you're servicing different investor types, you can explain how you adapt your offering and your approach to suit different risk profiles and investment objectives as well. Yeah, so so we've we've experimented a lot with having you know uh, data only, more kind of uh, bespoke human services. We've found that it's really the combination of those different things mm. that are, is the most powerful thing, right? So we can have a client where maybe the the chief investment officer mostly relies on an email that comes from me every Sunday, right? But uh, the strategist that works for that uh, chief investment officer will go to the Exante data website and torture the data that's provided there and use the models that's there. So it's sort of a spectrum uh, that we have found uh, works the best. And um, we used to sell uh, essentially a data subscription alone. And um, then you run into the risk that uh, the client that has bought the data don't have the time to actually crunch it, right? And then... Uh, they'll not squeeze the value themselves out of the data. Mm. So we found that uh, to, to, to be a less productive way of doing business than you say, okay, we're going to offer like a full service data from human interpretation. And uh, that's, that's the model we have found works clearly the best. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now. Back to the show. Okay, well, um, let's turn our minds then to another company that you you found in you that you are CEO of, uh, and that's Market Reader. So again, I read on your website that you closed a new uh, seed funding round earlier this month. So congrats on that. Thanks for noticing. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Um, yeah, did my research. Um, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, we've got a lot of retail investors listening in. What will differentiate this tool from the many others that are available to retail investors? Well, so for, for the ones that have the video, so here's the cup of the new company that has that logo <laughs> and it's going to say market reader there. So um, uh, that's, that's the, the new company. I have been dealing with institutional investors my whole career, right? I did it at Goldman, Bridgewater Context, uh, Nomura Securities, and Exante is also, we essentially cater to like the top institutional money managers in the world, right? So what we want to do different with market reader is that we want to have a tool that can help everybody. And how do we do that? It's a piece of software that it essentially tells you why is the market moving, right? So if there's a gap in a stock that you own, market readers should be essentially instantly able to explain why that gap is happening, whether it's because there's some news that came out, whether somebody tweeted something bad about it, whether it's just because that stock is moving because there's something else in the market going on, right? It could be Exxon is moving because oil is collapsing, right? Those types of links we've all modeled out. So 
market reader can tell why the market is moving instantly in a data-driven way. It's not that we have a bunch of people sitting and, and explaining. We are watching through uh, a cloud computing system like more than 10,000 assets all the time. In real time, we have all the links modeled out and we are tracking news, social media, and so forth instantaneously. It's quite expensive, actually, to do all these things. That's why we needed the funding last week. <laughs> uh, but uh, in, in Q2, we're going to start launching this company, right? So marketreader.com is the website. And uh, yeah, we're very excited to essentially use some of the experience we have with ex- institutional investors that also have this problem of, of quickly understanding what's going on, but trying to help a much broader audience. So uh, we're excited that the, the found funding round uh, went well, and we're working very hard to put the finishing touches on the product and get users to use it in Q2. Yeah, fantastic. Right. Well, we'll include that link in the episode description and then Perhaps in Q2, we can get you back on because I've got a lot of questions I want to ask about the product, but I think we're better served to do that once it's live. That sounds like a good idea. Like we, we need to definitely get the word out, right? Because we've been working very hard on this software, <laughs> but it, it's not enough that we're excited about it. We need other people to be excited about it as well. So hopefully we'll get to that point in Q2. Yeah, for sure. Okay, great. Well, let's return to that uh, topic that we teased at the start of the episode, Japan. Uh, Japan's finance minister warned that the country's finances are becoming increasingly precarious to an almost unprecedented degree, to use his quote. So for those not following the story here, perhaps just briefly describe the financial state Japan finds itself in. Yeah, so we've had a a long period of time, right, where Japan was struggling with low growth. And uh, there's a demographic element to that as well, like Japan's uh, population is literally shrinking. And um, they've had many rounds of, of different stimulus initiatives that has been uh, a problem for, uh, for public finances, right? So we've had structural deficits in Japan. We've had a big buildup in, in government debt. And then we've had this just extraordinary situation, right, that the, the monetary authorities, the Bank of Japan, has been delivering very low interest rates, but also doing quantitative easing, buying an enormous amount of, uh, of, of these government bonds. So we have a situation where the government has issued all this debt, but now because of the monetary policy experiment under Kuroda, uh, the Bank of Japan has bought, like call it roughly half of all that debt, right? And, and injected that money into the system. And linked to that, we, we saw the, the Japanese currency come under very significant pressure. In, uh, in the first, starting in the first half of 2022. Like when I, when I joined Nomura Securities in around 2009, like, like you referenced, right? We had a long period where essentially dollar yen was gravitating towards 80. Mm-hmm. We got to 150 in, in the autumn of, of 2022, from 80 to 150. Now we're talking about pretty big moves here, mm. right? Uh, and this is not, you know, a hyperinflation country or something like that, or like Turkey or Venezuela, where you understand the currency needs to go down because uh, it needs to compensate for inflation. Japan still has low inflation. So having such an extraordinary move in the currency, even though you have low inflation and your trading partner is quite, quite something, and obviously linked to a monetary policy situation that is diver- has been diverging up until December, Mm-hmm. from everything else that's going on in the world in a, in a way that is pretty much unprecedented. 
So just a fascinating situation to, to analyze. And I can tell you, out of the Accenti uh, data client base, we've had a lot of people spending a lot of time in Tokyo <laughs> over the last couple of months. A lot of people are really doing their research now in Japan, right? Because the, the moves have been historical, very big. And um, like, if it is the case that uh, we're finally going to have a, a normalization of policy after essentially authorities like maxing out like how easy they can be for such a long time, if they're going to start to go in the other direction, it's going to be epic. And we saw kind of a prelude to that in December, right? When they just tweet essentially where the levels they control uh, the bond yields within, like allow them to move from previously max zero. 0.25 to now 0.5, and that create like shock waves in in global markets. Uh, that's a little bit of a prelude to okay, if they've really let the bond yields go, if they actually had to hike interest rates, we could get enormous moves out of Japan. So I can understand why people are spending time in Tokyo. Yeah, absolutely. Sushi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, got it. I, well, there's quite a few things I want to return to, but perhaps. I guess to further set the scene, um, I was reading about their security concerns, some of which are pretty obvious. You've got China, North Korea, and Russia that are potentially exacerbating the the macro problems that the company country sorry is facing. You talked about the uh, debt burden. I think it's the highest in the industrialized world, more than double its five trillion dollar economy. So, to what extent do you think those security concerns exacerbate the problem? Well, so I think I think this is like uh, this is a, a topic that goes beyond Japan. Yeah, this is something that I think for investors that are thinking about asset location and trading in 2023 is is one of the most important issues, right? Because you're going to have uh, different countries with different debt levels, different leverage, mm-hmm. and different sensitivity to moving interest rates around, mm. and you can certainly have the concern that, okay, Japan might have inflation go from 1% to 3%. And maybe they will normalize their interest rates from, they're slightly negative, like they're minus 0.1 now. Maybe they will go from minus 0.1 to, say, plus 1. Yeah. But that will be a small move relative to inflation. If inflation has moved from one to three, then moving interest rates by one percentage point or slightly more than that is not really a lot. So if you go and calculate, you know, debt dynamics, like if you look up the equation that you had in university, like it has to do with the with the growth rate of the economy and the interest rates and how these two are in relation to each other, right? So the, the real problem for debt dynamics come when the interest rate moves more than the, the normal growth in the economy, right? So yeah. the question you can have is if inflation starts to move, are they really willing to move that normal interest rate sufficiently to, to generate any increase in real interest rates? Mm-hmm. And that's a concern you can have with Japan. It's also a concern you can have with many other uh, G10 economies, as we call them in, in, uh, in, in currency markets, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that if you look at what's going on in the currency market this year, a lot of the economies that have the highest debt levels, and Japan is a bit special because they now have this shock around monetary policy. But if we just look broadly, like places like Canada, where they have a housing market with a lot of leverage, 
the United Kingdom, where uh, we have a housing market that's also in trouble and, and leverage consumers, those are actually some of the markets that have done the, the worst, some of the currencies that have done the worst. Whereas in the past, when we had debt cycles, it was often like, you know, people are worried about emerging markets. There's some emerging markets that have almost no debt. Mm. Like the economy operates almost the same, whether interest rates are 5%, or 7%, 9%, it doesn't really make much of a difference. The only difference that matters is to the currency and how foreigners think about trading that currency. Mexico is a bit like that. Mm. I'm exaggerating, but like private sector, like cons- consumer debt to GDP is like something around like 20% of GDP is like nothing compared to G10 economies. Mm. So when we think about how the world is responding to a situation where we go from zero interest rates to something that is far from zero now, call it four, five, six percent in, in many G10 economies, those transmissions are, are going to be totally different. And uh, that's going to differentiate how the currencies are performing. Great. So going back to then last Monday, when the Bank of Japan maintained the policy balance rate with minus 0.1%, when a lot of investors had been expecting a change. Firstly, did that decision surprise you at all? Well, so I've been I've been watching Kuroda since he was appointed um, in in 2013. He's a pretty stubborn guy. <laughs> so really, the the really the surprise was that there was some movement in December, right? Mm. That the, there was uh, some step towards normalizing policy. I think it's much more logical to say, okay, there's a new governor of the mm. Bank of Japan coming in in April. Yeah. That new governor will have to set the tone for a multi-year period, uh, whether that includes you know, normalizing what's going on in the bond market, allowing bond yields to move, whether it involves uh, you know, moving actual central bank interest rates. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a situation where uh, we're, we're looking at. Uh, so I don't think it was a massive surprise that uh, the Corona didn't want to embark on, on, on some dramatic uh, monetary policy shift right before he is on his way out. The big question now in Japan is the inflation we've had, mm-hmm. like how sticky is it? Is it just, you know, commodities moving around, that type of thing? Is it just a temporary reopening of the economy? And we're going to have a very interesting situation because now we have China reopening, which is going to have some spillover effects, certainly to Japanese tourism and so forth. Then we have a situation where the, the Japanese labor market is kind of recovering from the COVID shock with a lag. And there's an incredible focus on wage growth, right? The, the main indicator the Bank of Japan looks at to sort of gauge, okay, is the inflation pressure more sticky is where the wages are moving as well. So right. they have a, a specific mechanism for negotiating wages for, for big enterprises. We'll know results of, of those negotiations around Q2. Uh, so a lot of people think really Q2, and I agree with that, is when the new governor is going to look at the data and make a decision, okay, what's the new framework for the Bank of Japan? Is it going to be a big shift from, from what Corona had? And um, yeah, I think if you, if you look at, at where the yield curve is in Japan, we've actually had some movement back and forth. Mm-hmm. But uh, from where we are now, after the retracement down and yields across the curve, uh, we're not pricing much prospect of a meaningful normalization of policy, right? So if inflation does prove sticky over mm-hmm. the next six to nine months, there could be still be a big shock to come. 
Yeah, got it. And you've probably kind of half answered this question already, but let's get the other half of the answer. This comes, this recent move obviously comes off the back of that historic move last December, as you've already referenced. Um, but with everyone looking for and potentially hoping for a further move up last week, does this mean that investors should expect more volatility in the coming months? What, what would you say to that? So I would say in, in general, when I look globally, like we've had, we've had three years, 2020, 21, 22, with just incredible macro volatility. Like I've done macro strategy since uh, 99, roughly, and uh, I've, I've never seen anything like this. It, it, the global financial crisis was intense, but it was like mostly one shock. Here, we have like just a lot of incredible shocks going on at the same time. We have the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? We have uh, the recovery from the COVID shock. We have most inflation we've had in 40 years. There's so many things going on at the same time. So when I look at 2023, I do think that overall macro volatility will be less extreme than it was in, in 22. Right. But it doesn't mean it's going to be back to, you know, very little volatility like we had in 18 and 19. Mm. And for Japan specifically, it could also be like specific to Japan. We could have an incredible amount of volatility. Inflation changes everything. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. Like we can see like how markets behaved here in the last couple of years when we've had inflation, like totally different from anything we've seen for a long time, right? If, if that is the case that we're also going to have inflation in Japan, we're going to have massive moves. So uh, this is certainly something that's worth uh, paying extremely close attention to. And uh, as we saw in December, it can, it can impact global bond markets if the Japanese yield curve move, right? So even if you say, oh, okay, I, I don't have any investments in Japan, I don't need to pay attention. It's not true. Like it might impact uh, how your treasure holdings perform. Yeah, got it. Okay, well, let's move on to the ripple effects this is likely to have in other markets. Let's start with the dollar. You've referenced already the yen-dollar relationship, but given the macro economic effect of the BOG policy has also been already felt through the exchange rate channel. The yen had appreciated against the dollar following the policy pivot in December, but since then it's fallen. How do you expect that trend to develop over the rest of 2023 specifically? So so I think think there's some good reasons to think that the dollar is is staging a pretty major turn here. Like I I think 2023 is going to see big shifts in asset allocation. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because there's a new shock hitting. It's because the shock of going from zero interest rates to going to 5% interest is such a big shock for financial markets. There's, there's a lot of players uh, for whom it takes a long time to fully adjust, and those adjustments are going to play out this year. So that's something that, that could be a dollar negative that's working kind of in the background and, and is a lasting impact. In relation to the dollar-yen, Dollar-yen is a function of the global dollar trend and then some specific issues that relates to Japan. And dollar-yen is also hyper-hypersensitive to U.S. interest rates. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of logical, right? If your own interest rates are, are still anchored at zero, then what's happening with the, the foreign interest rates is sort of in a relative dimension more important compared to, if you think about Brazil, where they have 13% interest rates, doesn't matter so much if you compare with you know, five, five or five. 525 is still a big gap, right? So relative to to the yen, it it is hugely relevant. So 
exactly how the yen trades in the next couple of months until the new governor comes in, I think you can argue is, is still going to be closely linked to what the Fed does, mm-hmm. right? So if the Fed is dovish, dollar yen can go down. If uh, if Powell wants to push back against this uh, pivot pricing that's coming into the, to the U.S. yield curve, we could actually have dollar yen trade higher. So I think it's very closely linked to to the Fed in the near term. The big call for the yen looking further ahead, like if we say we look into 2024 even, mm-hmm. is going to be linked to whether you think the Bank of Japan is really going to normalize policy, right? So we saw in December, like dollar yen can move 4 or 5% in a day if there's real evidence of normalization. And that was just a bond yield moving, you know, obviously swaps move more than bonds, but like, like let's just say the bond yields move 25 basis points, right? And that generated 4 or 5% in the currency, right? Think about a situation where, okay, what if interest rates in the short end of the curve goes from slightly negative to plus one? Mm-hmm. Then we, we can, it's easy to talk about 10, 15, 20% move in the currency, right? So you want to get that view on Japanese inflation, right? And then there's potentially a 10% plus trade in the yen. Fantastic. All right. That covers off dollar yen. A lot of the listeners will be invested in US equity markets. So let's turn our minds there to start. What will the ripple effect from the Japan situation be? specifically in U.S. equity markets, do you think? Well, so I think it kind of goes back to what uh, I've been alluding to a couple of times already, right? I think 2023 is a year of, of asset allocation changes. Yeah, We are still in the process of a longer-term adjustment from a world in which U.S. risk assets, i.e. U.S. equities, was the sort of go-to risk assets for everybody. Like I have clients in in a lot of financial centers in the world, like Singapore, Hong Kong, London, New York, Sao Paulo. Mm -hmm. Like we had a couple of years where the main focus of of portfolio managers in all those financial centers is was the exposure to U.S. stocks. Yeah. Irrespective of where they were. It was not a very healthy uh, situation in a way, right? And and now, now we're in a situation where uh, we've had uh, certain sectors in the U.S. equity market, right, have seen their valuation come under pressure after that those valuations were very elevated. And U.S. assets have much more competition, right? You have emerging market bonds that have the highest yield in, in 20 years. We have uh, European fixed income that have some yield uh, mm-hmm. for the first time, uh, at least since 2015. Yeah. Uh, we have emerging market stocks that have been just trading – horrifically, pretty much since the taper tantrum of 2013 and, and faced a series of stock, like we had the Chinese problem in 15, we, we had the COVID shock, like there's just been like bad, bad, bad things happening to EM assets. And we had spent a lot of time on tracking flows that the flow trends that we are seeing in emerging market assets in the beginning of 2023 are, this, are the strongest we've seen for a multi-multi-year period. Mm. Uh, so it appears that investors are waking up to to these alternatives to U.S. risk assets. Uh, so I, I would strongly recommend that for, for U.S. investors or, or investors that are focused on, on these U.S. equities, it's worth looking at, okay, there if obviously there's a lot of focus on ETFs, right? So are the international ETFs that actually provide an alternative, right? It could be a specific country that has an equity market that's attractive or it could be a global sector as opposed to just the U.S. sector. Uh, I think that differentiation is going to be very key in, in 23 
And um, yeah, I think we've, we've had such a long run mm. where the U.S. risk gets it's, it's it's both. It's actually both the equity market, but it's also U.S. high yield bonds, right? Right. Uh, if you go to speak to a, a European pension fund uh, or insurance company and something like that, and you ask, okay. Uh, okay, what have you you've been doing in global fixed income markets over the last couple of years? I'm, I'm not. I'm saying if you had asked them bef- before this big inflation shock, right? But even during last year, the answer would have been, yeah, our main focus is like you know high yield bonds in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. So even for the people who were focused on fixed income, mm-hmm. they were focused on risky fixed income in the United States, mm-hmm. right? So it's almost like the answer for for the equity investors and the fixed income investors was the same okay, we're going to make some extra money in the United States. And that's, I'm, I'm simplifying a lot here, right? But in, in a big picture sense, if you think about the outlook of the dollar, it's about whether that is really turning. Yeah. Are we turning in a way where people are looking for risk assets outside the US? And um, I think there are very good reasons to expect that. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, we track the flows day and night. Like we, we have a massive system for tracking Literally, our goal at Exanta Data is to track literally every capital movement in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And we watch it like hawks. And there certainly are changes, but I think that change is something that is in motion and has certainly not run its full course yet. So I think it could be a drawn-out process. Uh, it could be a multi-year thing, right? Because it was going in the other direction for a long period of time. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I wanted to get a little bit more meat on the bone there. We spoke to Gabriela Santos of JP Morgan last week, and she was saying a similar thing in relation to non-US equity exposure versus international equity exposure. But we've got a lot more detail on that now. And it's good to hear some form of consensus as well. Um, I think that's a nice juncture actually to move on to the final question I'll ask today, which, and this is something that we tend to ask most of our guests, uh, we want to leave our listeners with, with an idea, something completely different perhaps from the prior discussion that we've had today. Opto's tagline reads, discover the next big idea. So with that in mind, I wonder whether you could point listeners in the direction of an economic or financial trend, perhaps one underreported by the wider financial media that they should keep eye on this year. Well, so um, right now, everybody's focused on on China, right? And uh, there's something going on around China that's going to be very important for how global markets trade over the next couple of months, Mm. right? But I do think that is in focus. What I don't think is in focus enough is that emerging market yields are the highest they have been for more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead to massive asset location. And what I think is very interesting when I look at what's going on in the market on a day-to-day basis is that we have had these correlations between markets, risk on, risk off, right? And we look at, at the market and we're used to a situation Oh, okay, now the U.S. equity market is going down. And then there's a bunch of other assets that are also trading down. It could be commodities. It could be emerging market assets and so forth. That correlation is changing. Mm. We're starting to see more and more examples of the U.S. equity market trading down and the other assets are not following. If that is like a pattern that uh, becomes more durable, it's a massive, massive thing. Mm. then you can seek safety in high-yielding assets outside the U.S. So I don't have proof in the correlations, but we have many more examples than normal that this is happening. If that really is a correlation that's starting to change, it's a huge thing. So I think that's something that should be on the radar and it could be massively bullish for EM assets. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, one to watch for our listeners for the rest of the year. Uh, and that's, I think, a fascinating insight to end on. That just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Jens. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting. And we'll do it again when uh, market readers read it in bond so we can talk uh, in more detail about that software. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.